Hi there, this is Scholar Minor, a podcast about myth, magic, and occasional miscellany. My name is Ursula, I'm your host and fellow learning enthusiast. Welcome back, friends, to another episode of Scholar Minor. My first semester of graduate school has come to a close, and I'm grateful to have a week of rest before the next one begins. I'm also grateful that spring appears to be well on its way, despite the temperature being unseasonably warm. Hopefully, we'll get a little more winter weather and some rain in the coming weeks, but in the meantime, it has been a pleasant change to enjoy the sunshine. It seems very fitting with all our newly emerging greenery that we just celebrated St. Patrick's Day. Last year, we talked a bit about the holiday and some creatures from Irish folklore in Pukai, Banshees, and Leprechauns way back in episode 11. I love revisiting Irish traditions, and in belated celebration of the holiday, we'll be delving once again into this rich vein of folklore. Before we get started, I'd like to formally apologize to any native Irish speakers for the absolutely terrible job I anticipate I'll be doing with many of the upcoming Irish words. I promise I'm trying my best, but I would fully expect that I will be getting some quite wrong. If you are familiar with the language, feel free to drop me a line with some tips. I would greatly appreciate it. On we go. Thanks for joining me to learn about the legendary Finn McCool and Cucullin this week. I hope it gets you into a festive mood. Enjoy. We've discussed in previous episodes the difficulty faced by scholars studying Western mythology based in oral traditions. The Greeks made things pretty easy for us. They wrote a lot of it down themselves, as did their successors, the Romans. In Northwestern Europe, however, much of early mythology was orally preserved, passed down through the generations by community storytellers and entertainers. Our existing written texts that address the mythologies of, say, the Vikings or the Celts were largely compiled by early Christian chroniclers and writers. Though this is still useful, it means we don't have an undiluted, as it were, version of the myths. To put together the most accurate picture we can, scholars use existing Christian texts alongside archaeological evidence, historical accounts, and existing oral traditions. Irish mythology has been divided into four cycles through the use of this methodology. The first of these cycles is the mythological cycle. Much of the content of this cycle was orally preserved, and it is the oldest, so we have to rely heavily upon the interpretations of Christian monks. In episode 24, The Irish Devil, we address the Laborgabala Aran, or the Book of Invasions, an 11th century manuscript that serves as one of the primary source works for this period of Irish myth. The Tuatha de Danann, one of the mythical godlike races chronicled in this work, were said to have ruled over Ireland prior to the arrival of humanity. They gradually retreated into a mystical other realm, their legends evolving into those of the fairy folk. While other manuscripts are included in the literature of this cycle, the Book of Invasions remains historians' primary reference. 
The Ulster Cycle followed the mythological and its primary focus is on, well, Ulster, a province in the northernmost part of Ireland, and the legendary king Crahar Magnessa. Manuscripts describing the events of this cycle date as early as the 12th century, and the stories themselves are much older. It's in this cycle that we are introduced to our first subject this week, the legendary warrior Cucullin. Then it was that the cutting, feet-performing, battle-winning, red-sworded hero, Cucullin son of Sultem, mounted his chariot, so that there shrieked around him the goblins and fiends, and the sprites of the glens, and the demons of the air, for the Tuatha de Danann were wont to set up their cries around him, to the end that the dread and the fear and the fright and the terror of him might be so much the greater in every battle and on every field, in every fight and in every combat wherein he went. One of the longest epics attributed to the Ulster mythological cycle describes the exploits of the hero Cucullin. It is titled The Cattle Raid of Cooley, and the opening quote of this section comes from Joseph Dunn's 1914 English translation. The myths tell us that Cucullin was a warrior loyal to his uncle, Crahar Magnessa, and was the son of the Celtic god Luke. Luke was similar to Hermes in Greek mythology, Roman Mercury, Cucullin was said to have been incredibly beautiful and widely respected, able to perform incredible feats of strength and dexterity. The fact that he had seven fingers on each hand, seven toes on each foot, and seven pupils in each eye may have contributed to his martial prowess. He carried a spear, which was said to inflict 30 internal wounds with every strike, and was made from the bones of a sea monster. Some sources mention even stranger physical attributes, including four dimples colored blue, red, yellow, and green, and hair that is blonde, brown, and red. We are told that when he enters into his berserker-like state during battle, portions of his body change in shape, and a beam of light, the Lon Life, translated to the champion's light, projects directly from his forehead. I don't know about you, but I think I'd find this guy pretty intimidating on the battlefield. While his appearance may have been unusual, it certainly didn't hinder his success with the ladies. He was apparently considered very attractive, and was married to a princess. He was prone to many affairs, most notably with the fairy wife of a sea god, the wife of another Scottish chieftain, and possibly the female warrior Skaha, who trained him in weaponry. As author Mark Cartwright amusingly summarizes in the World History Encyclopedia, Skaha and Cucullin may have been lovers as he is described as gaining, quote, the friendship of her thighs, end quote, although this may refer to some martial ritual whose significance has now been lost. There are a few texts that scholars turn to for information about Cucullin. The Magnimrata Cuncullain, or Cucullin's Boyhood Deeds, describes, as you likely guessed, the young hero's feats during his youth. Despite his notable predisposition for warfare, his success came with a price. As we are told in Boyhood Deeds, Cathbad the Druid told the young Cucullin that, any stripling who on that day should for the first time assume arms and armor, the name of such an one forever would surpass all of Ireland's youth besides. 
His life, however, must be fleeting short. In spite of Cathbad's warning, the young Cacullin took up arms to defend his uncle. The cattle raid of Cooley, mentioned earlier, follows Cacullin and the Ulster warriors in their efforts to protect a famous bull, the titular Cow of Cooley, from kidnapping attempts by Queen Maeve. A curse is cast upon the other warriors, disabling them, and Cacullin is able to fend off Maeve's forces by himself until their recovery. The warriors of Ulster are victorious, but ultimately the bull is captured and a diplomatic peace is reached. Ultimately, the druid's warning would come to fruition with Cacullin's eventual decapitation at the hands of Lugaid Macconroy, the son of one of Cacullin's adulterous lovers. There are, of course, other variations of the tale of Cacullin's death, including that it was divine retribution because he ate a dog. Some versions tell us that the mortally wounded Cacullin tied himself to a standing stone, tricking his attacker into approaching him and burning him with his forehead beam as a last hurrah. The standing stone is a national monument in Ireland and stands in a field bearing the sinister name the Field of Slaughter. Whatever the exact sequence of events leading to his death was, Cacullin's luck had finally run out and the Druid's prophecy had caught up with him. The Fenian cycle of Irish mythology immediately follows the Ulster. Many of the works describing the Fenian cycle date from around the 3rd century, and it's here we find more emphasis on natural folklore and romantic heroes. Things are a little less war-focused than the Cacullan era, though that's not to say battle isn't present. One of the most important texts from this period is a collection of heroic stories called The Interrogation of the Old Men. Though much of the content is believed to have been preserved in oral traditions, this written work was compiled sometime around 1200. Featured in this work are many recognizable elements of Irish legend, Fairy Ring, St. Patrick, and Finn McCool, who appeared frequently in my own childhood storybooks. In addition to the interrogation of the old men, we have the boyish exploits of Finn, which tells us of the early days of Finn McCool. His father, a chieftain, is killed and the boy is raised in the forest, later defeating the man who killed his father, Gull McMorna. Unfortunately, our existing 12th century manuscript of this work is partially destroyed and missing some details of his youthful feats. We do, however, learn quite a bit about Finn McCool's origins. His mother, fearing that Gull McMorra and family would come after her son next, gave the boy up into the care of some female warriors living in an isolated wood. Thereupon the woman, his mother, bade farewell to the women warriors and told them to take charge of the boy till he should be fit to be a fighter, the boyish exploits tells us. And so the boy grew until he was able to hunt. We also learn that Finn McCool became known as Finn, meaning fair, as he was a shapely fair youth. One of the most popular legends of Finn McCool, the Salmon of Knowledge, is also included in this text. Finn sought out an old man named Finnehis on the Boina, hoping to learn poetry, for the poets thought that the place where poetry was revealed always was upon the brink of water. 
old Finehas had been fishing the waters of Fex Pool for seven years, having received a prophecy that consuming a salmon from the pool would grant him limitless wisdom. Shortly after Finn McCool's arrival, Finehas manages to catch the salmon from the pool, and quickly ordered his young visitor to cook it, warning him not to eat any of it. But unbeknownst to Finn McCool, he had already tasted it accidentally. The youth brought him the salmon after cooking it, the boyhood exploits describes. Hast thou eaten anything of the salmon, my lad, says the poet. No, says the youth, but I burned my thumb and put it into my mouth afterwards. Finehas handles the whole thing rather well, considering, and allows Finn McCool to eat the salmon as the prophecy was meant for him after all. From that day forward, whenever Finn McCool put his thumb in his mouth, whatever he had been ignorant of would be revealed to him. Finn McCool certainly has a close association with hunting and with nature. He met his wife, Sav, mother of Oisin, the poet and one of the characters in the interrogation of the old men, after discovering her in the form of a deer, enchanted by a druid. She turned briefly into a human with Finn McCool before eventually returning to the forest once again as a doe. The story of the giant's causeway, however, is one of the most well-known of all of Finn McCool's legends. Located at the feet of the seaside cliffs of the Antrim Plateau in Northern Ireland, the giant's causeway resembles a giant path of paving stones. It is made up of roughly 40,000 columns of basalt stone, evidence of underwater volcanic activity as long as 60 million years ago. These strange formations were caused by a thick layer of lava drying and cracking. Irish mythology, though, has a different explanation for this strange geological phenomenon. Interestingly, many versions of the Giant's Causeway myth describe Finn McCool as a giant, though this is really one of the only circumstances in which he is described as such. Usually, he is just a handsome hunter-warrior. But for the logistics of the Giant's Causeway to work, he would have had to be a pretty big guy. Finn McCool had a rivalry with a giant named Ben Adonner. In a fury, McCool built the causeway so that they could meet and finally fight it out. Some versions tell us that upon seeing Benadonner, McCool realized that his rival was much larger than he had previously thought, and so he had his wife disguise him as a baby. Seeing the adult-sized or perhaps even giant-sized baby, Benadonner fears that the child's father must be inconceivably immense. In his haste to escape before the father's return, Benadonner leaves via the causeway, destroying it behind him to avoid any potential pursuit. The Cycle of Kings, or the Historical Cycle, is the fourth and final cycle of Irish mythology. Most of its sources were written around the 4th to 7th centuries, but unlike its predecessors, it distinctly shows the influence of Christianity. It follows the achievements of kings and other local leaders, some real, some invented, and contains far fewer references to magic or supernatural influence. Its content is much more typical of early medieval histories, and bears more similarities with these works than with mythological compendiums.
I hope you enjoyed our discussion of Irish myths this evening, and as always, I'm grateful that you're listening. I also hope you had a pleasant and safe St. Patrick's Day, particularly if you were partying hard here in the United States like many of my neighbors. References and other relevant info is listed as usual in the show notes. And thank you for your patience with the spotty episode releases lately. The good news is I have officially completed that first term of my master's degree and I did really well. So I'm pretty proud, but definitely trying to find my rhythm when it comes to balancing all the things. That's all for this week, but happy belated St. Patty's and I hope you are all staying safe and well. Until next time.